Welcome to the online gathering of West Village Church. If you are new here with us today, I want to introduce myself. My name is Andrew, and I am really thankful that you've chosen to spend your time with us today. And I just want to let you know that our heart's desire as a church is to see you moving from being a guest or a spectator in this online realm, someone who's kind of anonymously kind of checking us out, uh, to becoming part of our family. One of the things that we often say uh, is that we believe that the church is not a place that you go to or an event that you participate in, but is actually a people that you are invited to be part of. And this is true now more than ever as we experience the fact that we can't even meet together physically uh, during COVID. And so if you want to get started on that process, I want to give you a couple of ways that you can do that. One is simply by texting your name to the number that you see on the screen right here below me. And uh, the other way is by just uh, writing in the chat bar of whichever platform that you are joining us on. Hey, I want to get connected. And someone from our team will be happy to reach out to you and let you know what some of those next steps might be. Now, if you are new with us, you may have missed this, but over the past couple of years, we have been walking through the book of Matthew together. And the book of Matthew is one of four books that deal with the life and teachings of Jesus. And so we're on week 83, I think. And so we're going to dive right in. Uh, If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 17. Now, really quick before we dive into our text for today, uh, just a few reminders of what's been happening so far in the book of Matthew. So Matthew chapter 17 starts off with Jesus going up to this mountaintop. He's in this uh, region called Caesarea Philippi, which is a little bit north of where he's typically been uh, kind of moseying around in the, in the Galilee region. And he goes up to this mountaintop with a couple of his most trusted followers, his disciples. And he has this incredible experience where God uh, comes and meets with him. He's transfigured. He's revealed as the glorious son of God. Um, Moses and Elijah appear confirming that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law of prophets. And God, the father speaks over him and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, in whom I love, obey everything that that he tells you basically. And then Jesus comes down from that mountain and right away he's confronted with the reality of the human condition as his own followers, his own disciples who he's left behind have failed to use his power for his purposes. A man comes to them with a son who's afflicted by an unclean spirit, by a demon, and and they are not able to cast it out, not because Jesus hasn't given them the authority and the power, but because they have lost their trust and faith in him. And so Jesus confronts their hearts and reminds them that only through him do they have access to the power that can actually transform our broken world. And now Jesus is going to switch gears. He's going to uh, move south and he's going to get back to that region of Galilee. Uh, but he's, he's not just going there, uh, you know, for a fun vacation or to continue on. He's going there with the purpose of gathering his followers all together so that they can travel down to Jerusalem. And he knows that when he gets there, Jerusalem is the center of political and religious leadership in Israel. It's the, the epicenter of all that happens And he knows that he's going to confront the religious leaders and they will kill him. And so he gathers his disciples together and he starts to explain what's going to happen to him. And this is where we find ourselves. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open it up again to chapter 17 and we're going to jump into verse 22 today. So it says this, When they came together in Galilee, he, meaning Jesus, said to them, The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And on the third day, 
he will be raised to life. To life. And his disciples were filled with grief. I don't know what goes through your head when you hear this description. There's a lot going on in these two verses. Uh, Jesus is explaining to his disciples what's inevitable, what's going to happen to him. But what I find most fascinating, most interesting is actually the disciples' response because it is completely not what you would expect. I mean, of course, you might expect some mourning and some sadness when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to die. That, that seems pretty sad. But that's not all he says. He also tells them that he is going to be raised on the third day. Now, if I had a friend who sat down with me and said, hey, this really bad thing's gonna happen to me, but this uh, other thing, this really good thing is gonna take place that's gonna completely eradicate the bad thing, I don't think I'd be sitting there moping around. I'd have a lot of questions. And yet the disciples' response is one of great grief. They're sad and, and, and it's, it's as if they completely have missed this whole end to what Jesus has told them. It's like it went right over their heads. And as I've read through this text multiple times, the question I've asked myself is why? Why do they so miss the significance of what Jesus has said to them so that their reaction can only be classified as grief, as mourning, as deep sadness. We well, see, first century Jewish people like Jesus' disciples, they grew up in a particular context. And that context was growing up under the, uh, the rule and oppression of the Roman Empire. And they grew up immersed in the stories of the scriptures and the, the prophets declaring that God would one day work to free his people from oppressive imperial forces that God would raise for them up a leader from the line of their quintessential King David who would come and fight their battles for them. And they had this vision, this dream that one day God's king would be, kingdom would be established and that the Romans would be cast out of their country and then they would become an independent nation state. And along comes Jesus. And what does he say? He says, the kingdom is coming in and through me. And we know from different parts of the scriptures that the disciples at various times did not understand exactly what Jesus was calling them to. They interpret it through the lens of their own expectations at many points. And I believe why they are so grieved is not simply because their friend, their teacher, their master is going to the cross, but also because that represents for them the death of the expectations and dreams that they have imbued into Jesus. I mean, these guys, like, think about it for a second. These guys had livelihoods, they had families, and they left all of these things behind. Why? Because in Jesus, they sensed something that was imbuing them with meaning. And when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to die, looking at it through the lens of what they expected, this is not at all how things are supposed to work. And not only is their dream threatened, but then their very meaning is threatened by Jesus' suffering. It's interesting to think about. 
we as human beings are intrinsically creatures that desire to find meaning. Disciples find their meaning in what they expect Jesus is going to do, but each of us as human beings looks for things routinely to find meaning, to tell us why we're here. Why do I exist? What gives me purpose? Tim Keller, great author, pastor uh, in New York City, wrote a book called Making Sense of God. I highly recommend it. And in it, he tackles this problem of meaning. And he says, uh, Christians or, or religious people at least have this tendency to look around at people who aren't religious and say, you have no basis for meaning in your life. But that's actually not true, he contends. I have a, a really good friend uh, his name's Kai. He's, uh, he's a, a med student. He actually immigrated here from China. Um, and, uh, and I often have great conversations with him about uh, what he feels, what he believes. And let me tell you, even though Kai does not believe at all in Jesus, does not have a relationship with him, does not even feel the desire to know him, he has a life that is chock full of meaning. I mean, he finds meaning as someone who helps people medically. Even before being a med student, he was a biomedical engineer helping design instruments and tools and systems that would help people get cared for in the medical system. I mean, on top of that, he has, you know, vibrant work in different aid organizations. He's worked for the World Health Organization at different points. He is an extrovert with vibrant community around him. And if I went up to Kai and said, hey, bud, sorry, but your life just doesn't have purpose and meaning, he would say, what are you talking about? It totally has purpose and meaning. Keller asserts that yes, indeed, we can find meaning in almost any place. And secular people, just the same as anyone else, have that need and desire for meaning. And they can actually find it. But he says how they find it is, is the word he uses to, to describe it is what he calls created meaning. Created meaning. So there are Everything in the world has the capacity to give us meaning if we invest our time and energy into it. I mean, there's tons and tons of things. Uh, you can find meaning in your family. You can find meaning in your career or your job. You can find meaning in your own personal health and wellness. But Keller also contends that this form of meaning is very fragile. It's very fragile because it doesn't give room to explain suffering. In fact, suffering actually erodes that meaning. And here's why. See, when you experience suffering and, and the things that you find meaning in are just found temporally or materially, uh, what happens? Those things in and of themselves start to get destroyed. So let's say, for example, that your career is where you find meaning. What happens when you suffer the loss of that career, that job? Well, then your meaning's gone. What happens if you find meaning rooted in your family? What happens when you suffer tragedy and loss and you lose a family member? You get that call on the phone 
sorry. We just found your son. And it looks like he has taken his own life. What happens when your meaning is derived from your own personal health and wellness and you get into a tragic accident and lose the functionality of part of your body or you get that call, please come down to the office. We found something on the scan and you get there and you find out that you have stage four cancer. What do you do when your meaning is found in your career? And you come into the office and they say, hey, I'm really sorry, but we have to let you go. Or maybe they don't even say sorry. Just say, hey, pack your stuff, get out of here, you're done. In each of these moments, we experience suffering and that suffering completely upends our sense of meaning because our meaning cannot withstand suffering. And this is what's going on with the disciples. See, they had this picture in their head of who Jesus was supposed to be and what he was supposed to accomplish. And it gave them a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. And suddenly Jesus tells them, that thing that you've been hoping for, well, it's about to end. Because they knew, they knew intrinsically in their heart that the vision that they had could not end in the death of their leader. And yet Jesus tells them that it does. And what does that leave them with? It leaves them with nothing, with despair, with sadness. Keller has this great line that he uses to describe the innate problems with this view of meaning. He says this. He says, secularism is the only worldview whose members must find their main meaning within this life. All other ways of understanding the world hold that this life is not the whole story, but with secularism, it is. See, what Keller contends is that when our life is invested in material things and that's what gives us meaning, that we do not have the faculty or capacity or resources to actually make sense of our suffering. We don't know how to deal with it. But then he continues on and he says, uh, creative meaning is only one type of meaning. He says there's a second type of meaning, which he calls discovered meaning. He says creative meaning is something where we imbue an object with the meaning for ourselves. He says discovered meaning is different. He says traditional cultures and ultimately Christianity believe that there is meaning that is just simply there. And that the way that we find our meaning is to discover it and that then affects the way that we live. And his claim is that that discovered meaning has the resources in order to help us process and work through meaning in the midst of suffering so that we do not fall into the trap that the disciples have and come into a point of despair. And I believe that Jesus' invitation to his disciples and his invitation to you and to me is to discover that our ultimate meaning is actually found in him. So what I want to do here is I want to take a moment to dive back into the text and show you just how Jesus is, is actually helping us understand this. It's 
Jesus starts off by saying this, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. What's so fascinating about the gospel accounts is that in each account, they start off by saying, uh, or, or most of the accounts, they start off by saying that this is the account of Jesus who is the Messiah. In fact, many of the New Testament writers, including the Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, many of the books that make up the New Testament, continually make this claim that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed coming King of Israel. But Jesus doesn't actually use this term to describe himself. Why is that? Because Jesus knows that with that term came a particular view of how the world should work that was created by the people living in his day. And because they use that term in this particular way, it offered not discovered meaning, but creative meaning for them. And so Jesus, aware of this reality, rather than uh, allow them the space to try and figure out Uh, what's going on uh, by continually using that term. Uh, What he does is he actually takes other terms to to refer to himself. And one of those terms is what we just saw here, the son of man. And these other terms were rooted deeply in the biblical story, the work that God was doing throughout history and the promises that he had made, which Jesus was saying in essence were being fulfilled in him. And it was these terms that were helping his followers understand what it actually meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. And in particular, this term son of man, we see it pop up all throughout the gospel accounts. Jesus uses it on several different occasions in the book of Matthew. And we haven't had a huge amount of of time to talk about this. So I think this is an important moment for us to take a step back and ask ourselves, what is Jesus really claiming about who he is that the disciples didn't seem to get? This term comes from the book of Daniel. Daniel was an Old Testament figure who lived in Babylon. He was actually deported to Babylon after Babylon came and sacked Jerusalem. Uh, He was part of the royal family. He becomes an official in the Babylonian empire. And near the end of his life, Daniel has a series of visions. And in these visions, God uh, reveals to him some of the ways that he is working to bring humanity back into into a restorative state in relationship with him. And Daniel 7 is one of these visions. And so I don't want to go through the whole passage. I'll just summarize parts of it for you. Essentially what happens is Daniel's uh, having this vision and he sees these ferocious beasts come out of the water. Uh, the beasts are like these hybrid creatures. They have different animal parts that make them up. They're, they're monsters. And he sees these beasts come up. Um, and, uh, and then he kind of gets transported to like God's command center. Like the holy throne room of God. He says that in that place, uh, there were thrones that were sent up. In the ancient of days, the term used to describe God, he comes and he takes his place. He sits down on his throne. All around him are the angelic hosts of heaven. They all sit down too. And then something very interesting happens. If you have your Bibles, open it to Daniel chapter uh, 7 verse 13. It says that, After the uh, thrones took place, the beast is destroyed. And then he says in in verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the son of man. Now we got to understand for Daniel's day 
son of man was simply a colloquial term that just meant human being. So he's saying, there before me was a, a human being. And he was coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay, so this is starting to trigger some like, oh, I, I got to pay attention to this for Daniel because this doesn't make sense. I mean, what human being could go and enter the holy throne room of God. After all, Daniel knows the story of Genesis. He knows that Adam and Eve have sinned against God and have been cast away from his presence. And yet here is a human being who can enter into God's holy presence. Listen to how it continues. Verse 14, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So according to Daniel's vision, this human being not only comes into God's presence, but is now endowed with God's attributes, God's glory, God's authority, God's power. So much so that he is worshipped as God. I mean, this would have been so mind-blowing. And yet Jesus is using this term to help his disciples see that he is indeed this person. But that's not the end of Daniel 7. Uh, Daniel 7, in, in Daniel 7, Daniel's still confused about what this all means. And so he's, he's kind of in this holy throne room part of his vision. And he looks around and there's all these angelics, uh, angelic creatures. And he, he says, oh yeah, someone tell me, explain to me what's going on. So an angel comes over to him and he starts to, to explain the vision to him. And listen to what he says, verse 17. We're going to skip ahead here a little bit. It says, the four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the most high will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Okay, so going back to the original vision. So we know then that the four beasts represented something. They represent four empires or four kingdoms. But then what this angelic figure is saying, well, the son of man also represents something. He represents the people of God, the holy ones of God, the people of Israel. Okay. So now what we see is that it was Israel's vocation. Their job was to go and live in such a way that they could be brought up into the holy presence of God. That they could then fulfill what he had originally made them for in Genesis to rule and have dominion over all the earth, bringing his glory uh, to bear, bringing worship to him through his lordship and rulership at work in them. And this isn't it. Uh, Daniel still wants more information. So he asks again, verse 23, what's going on? And the angels gave him this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The 10 horns are 10 kings who will come from this kingdom. And after them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. And he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the most high and oppress his holy people and try to change and set the set times and laws. And the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. 
But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under the heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. So back again, talking to the, about the holy people of the Most High. But then it goes singular again. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. So are we talking about a single person or are we talking about a group of people? the answer that Jesus wants us to understand by using this title is the answer is, is yes. See, the claim that the Bible continually makes is that Israel was given this vocation, that this is what their true purpose and meaning was supposed to be, but they utterly failed at it. Why? Because they kept looking to other things to give them meaning. And yet Jesus, the one who truly found his meaning in God, lives the life that they were supposed to live. He is the true and better Israel, but the means by which, the means by which he overcomes the beast is through suffering, is through death. And so paradoxically, what the Bible's claim is, is that it's actually through Jesus' suffering and death that we find our true fulfillment and meaning. And this isn't just true of the book of Daniel. This is written throughout the pages of scripture. And Jesus continually points back to different parts of scripture to help his disciples understand this. One of the passages that Jesus often used to describe himself was the the, uh, book of Isaiah. And in particular, he looked at these five poems that were about what Israel was supposed to be like. But Isaiah does something very similar to Daniel in that he says, well, this is what Israel is supposed to be like, but they're not going to do it. But there's going to be one from Israel who will, the true and better Israel. In Isaiah 53, he describes what this person will be like. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, the son of man is going to be handed over to who? Men. Or they were going to despise and reject him and ultimately kill him. The Bible makes it clear though, that this isn't just some person handing Jesus over. No, it actually makes the claim that this was God's purpose beforehand. That God was the one who actually handed Jesus over so that he could suffer and die. Listen to how Isaiah chapter 53 continues. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Let me just jump ahead a little bit to verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And through the Lord make, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. 
and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. What does you say? Death is not the final answer. On the third day, I will be raised from the dead. And then it continues on in verse 11. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Here's the paradoxical reality of what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He's saying, you think that my death is the end of meaning. Saying, but it's actually only the means by which you can discover your true meaning. And that true meaning is a relationship with your creator. And the Bible says that God's desire is that we as his creation would be able to enjoy him in fellowship, in relationship for all of eternity. We all need to experience resurrection. So let me turn back to the the problem at hand. You see, the, the problem at hand is that all of us seek for meaning. All of us do. And yet most of us have actually invested meaning in something that is ultimately fragile and will ultimately fail. This is true, as we mentioned, for secular people. But the reality is, is that if, if many of us are being honest, this can also be true for many who call themselves Christians. See, our, our culture is shifting away from Christianity, but there are still many people who grew up with a Christian, uh, a Christian experience. And they believe in a lot of things that sound pretty Christian. They believe in a God who loves them. But that's not all they believe. They also believe that this God who loves them will reward them for doing good. And so they will get all of the things that they desire and want if they are a good person. This is what sociologists call moralistic therapeutic deism. God is there to help me feel good about myself, to give me what I want if I'm a good person. But ultimately, this comes to the same problem that the secular mindset does. Because think about it. What is your ultimate hope? What is ultimately giving you meaning? It's not actually God. It's not. God is just a means to an end. He's a pathway to get what you really want. And often what we really want is the same thing that a secular person really wants. I want health. I want happiness. I want a good family. I want good success. I want relationships. And again, each of these things, when threatened by suffering and loss, falls flat on its face, and we lose our meaning. Now, it is true that there are other belief systems besides Christianity that argue for discovered meaning. This is not unique to Christian belief. But Keller 
helps us understand that these other systems don't actually make the most sense of the lived out human experience. Let me read for you quickly how he argues this. He says, part of the richness of the Christian life lies in the ways Christianity gives meaning that are distinct, not only from secularism, so not only from what we've talked about, but also from other religions as well. Unlike the concept of karma, which comes from Hinduism, Christianity teaches that suffering is not is often unfair, not merited by actions from a former life. So if you subscribe to the idea of karma, you believe that everything you get, you deserved. And yet we intrinsically know that this isn't true. Good people suffer bad things all the time. Innocent people suffer injustice all the time. And it's not because they lived a bad life somewhere else. The gospel message, the Christian message ultimately says there is injustice in the world and it happens and it doesn't mean because you've experienced that you ultimately deserve it. He goes on to say, unlike Buddhism, Christianity teaches that suffering is a terrible reality, not an illusion to be transcended with stoic detachment. The Buddhist says suffering is just an illusion. You can transcend it. You can find nirvana. And Jesus says, no, suffering isn't an illusion. It is real. It is tangible. We viscerally feel it as human beings. We know that it's not just a figment of our imagination. It is reality. Unlike ancient fatalism, such as the Greek Stoics or other shame and honor cultures, Christianity finds nothing particularly noble about suffering. It should not be welcomed. The medieval monks who went around masochistically flagellating themselves, causing themselves suffering, did not read their Bibles very well because the Bible does not promote us chasing down suffering. And yet, unlike secularism, Christianity teaches that suffering can be meaningful and that it can make you something great. So not only does Christianity make sense of suffering in the moment, but it actually helps us understand that suffering isn't just something that can't make us lose our meaning, but it can actually give us meaning. It can actually give us meaning. To finish off here, I want to give you a couple of reasons that I think this is true. And to do that, I'm going to quickly look at two letters written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was one of Jesus' earliest followers. And he, more than many others, experienced intense suffering. And yet, as he does so, he doesn't lose his sense of meaning. In fact, he continues to grow through it. Listen to what he says in his letter to the churches that were meeting in Rome. Romans chapter five, verses three, sorry, verses, uh, uh, yes, three. Says this. He says, we also glory in our sufferings. How can, how can you say that? How can he say we glory in our sufferings? 
Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for the righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, what Paul had realized is that because Jesus had suffered, because of his loss of life, that Paul was now able to discover a meaning that could transcend any pain and any suffering that he experienced. And didn't mean that when he went through these things and he didn't feel pain at all or that he didn't mourn or that he didn't weep. No. But as he says, he looks at these moments and he sees them as God's good purposes to refine him and make him more like God, that he can continue to discover his ultimate meaning in who God has created him to be. Church, the only way that we will not succumb to what the disciples did, which is hear what Jesus had said about his own death and mourn when we find ourselves going through times of suffering, when we find ourselves experiencing loss, is if we truly discover the hope and meaning that come from a relationship with God. There's a second reality though. See, not only is suffering the pathway oftentimes by which God actually grows us and helps us discover more of our meaning in him, but it's also the pathway he often uses to help others discover their ultimate meaning in him. Again, the Apostle Paul says in, uh, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, <laughs> it is hard to turn pages when it's a little breezy, so I apologize for the... He says in in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, looking at verse 7, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. He's talking about the gospel. And he continues on, he says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul experienced beatings, whippings, imprisonment, shipwrecks, the abandonment of friends, and ultimately death. How can he go through all that amount of loss and not lose his sense of purpose and meaning? Listen to what he says. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Uh, What Paul's saying is because we have encountered Jesus through his death, come to know him and found our ultimate purpose in him, we look at our sufferings not just simply as a massive inconvenience to the life that we're supposed to live, something to be grieved, but we actually see it as a means by which God is now at work through us, giving us meaning as he pursues other people. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, 
so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, the thing I want to encourage you in is when you look at your suffering, do you actually see it as a means by which Jesus is fulfilling his purpose to restore all things in and through you? By declaring to the world around you, declaring to the people who haven't yet discovered their ultimate meaning in him, that he is there, that he loved them so much that he was willing to lay down his life for them so that we could have ultimate hope of restoration. See, the way in which we suffer tells a story about Jesus. And that story can give hope to others and help them find their ultimate meaning and fulfillment in him. I want to finish off again by just asking us, so as we look at this, how then does this affect us in suffering? Uh, to, to finish off here, I want to share a story with you. When I was in Edmonton, uh, there was a family in our church and the mom, uh, she had chronic pain issues. Uh, when she was younger, she had two kids. Uh, and shortly after her second was born, she got diagnosed with endometriosis. And the endometriosis had started to move over not just her uterus, but over her, uh, her bowels. And it required a, a massive amount of surgeries. And afterwards, there was such severe scarring to her bowels that she had to live with chronic pain. Before this, she had been active. She'd been a volleyball player. She had dreams of running with her kids and playing sports with her kids and being active. And there were days, many, many days, where she was in such excruciating pain that she could not even get out of bed. For years and years and years, she couldn't eat solid foods. While her family ate the food that she cooked, she slipped down blended smoothies. I like a good smoothie, but not three days a week or three times a day, seven days a week. This is the kind of situation that anyone would look at and say, how are you not destroyed right now? How are you not just sitting there hating life? How are you not wanting to end your existence? And yet I was able to sit down with her and ask her about it. And you know what? And she, she, didn't, she didn't love the suffering, but she took joy in what Jesus had been doing in her through it because her ultimate meaning wasn't found in her family. It wasn't found in her health. It wasn't found in her accomplishments. It was found in Jesus. One last thing I want to remind us of. Not only can we trust Jesus because we see him actually being able to help us through suffering, but we can trust him because we know that he also went through suffering. He's not a God who's detached from what we go through. In fact, Jesus himself knows what it is to lose his sense of meaning and purpose. For on the cross, we see him scream out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate human condition where we have to grasp at other things to find meaning, Jesus experienced. 
one last Keller quote for us. Keller says, he, meaning Jesus, was then experiencing darkness, the meaningless life, the meaninglessness, life without God. On the cross, Jesus Christ got life without God so that we could have life with God. He was putting himself into our lives, our misery, our mortality, so that we could be brought into his life, his joy, and his immortality. Jesus is not a God who's detached from us in suffering. He's a God who is intimately equated with it. But as Jesus said to his disciples, his suffering and our suffering are not the end. The promise is, as a Jesus storybook Bible says, there will come a day when everything sad comes untrue. And knowing that not only allows us to look at our sufferings and find meaning in the midst of them, but also to be filled with great hope as we experience them. Let me pray. Father, as we see the fact that you suffer, that you died, we come before you and just humbly admit that there are lots of times when we look to other things that we create in our own image to give us meaning. And yet, in your grace, sometimes you allow us to go through suffering so that we see that those things do not have ultimate significance, that they are ultimately things that will die. And they point us forward to discovering our ultimate meaning in you. And as we discover our ultimate meaning in you, you give us the capacity, the joy to be able to understand the meaning that you offer us in the midst of our suffering. So Father, I pray and ask that you continue to use us, your people, in the midst of the dark times of our life to help others find their ultimate meaning and satisfaction in you. Amen.